Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day. Hi, I'm so glad you could make it for a listen. I hope you've been having a fabulous week. My special guest today has often been referred to as a one-hit wonder because he and his partner wrote a song that they had massive success with in 1976. I know you remember this one. I know where you go to, I knew when you came home last night. Distant Fire was absolutely a huge hit for Johnny Townsend and his musical partner Ed Sanford. But there's a whole lot more to both individuals and to the duo together than simply that song. I called up Johnny Townsend, the Alabama-born blues and R&B singer and pianist, to learn more about him. Johnny Townsend, welcome to A Breath of Fresh Air. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us. Well, thank you. I mean, I had nothing else to do this afternoon, so it was quite convenient. <laughs> How are you? What are you doing with yourself these days? Well, not doing a, a lot. I'm doing a lot of writing. Uh, I just got off the phone before I, I sat down here with my uh, partner, Ed Sanford. Uh, we've been getting together every Saturday with the hopes of we started this doing this thing before uh, the COVID inception. And then when that came about we all we just stopped what we were doing because we'd been rehearsing to do a two-man show and we were thinking about putting it in small theaters which was all of a sudden instantly verboten because because of the pandemic of course anyway we've got a great set of music worked up we're just waiting for a, an opportunity to do it you know and some to get some people interested at this fabulous well you came together with ed in the early 70s didn't you can you tell us a story about how the two of you found each other Well, Ed and I were playing just out of high school. Uh, Ed and I were playing in separate bands. Ed is from a a town 100 miles away from my hometown in Alabama. And uh, we just ran into each other one summer. We were playing beach clubs uh, in the Panama City, Florida area on the the coast. It's the Gulf Coast. And we were having a a matinee one afternoon. And Ed walked in and and to, to listen to the band. He was playing just down the street no more than 100 yards from where we were playing. <clears throat> so he, he dropped in to see me and uh, see the band. And after the, sh- after the set was over, he came up and introduced himself and said, you know, so I came, I went down after we were done to listen to him that night play at, at this the club called the Old Dutch, which was a, an iconic kind of a club. Of, anyway, that started a relationship when it, you know, we went our separate ways, but a couple of years later, Ed wanted to come to California. They had an opportunity to come to California with uh, a recording producer. And uh, their singer, who was married at the time with Kid on the Way, wasn't, wasn't going to do it. So they called me. And I was already in California at the time. I was hanging out with uh, some friends of mine who were called the Hourglass at that time. The Hourglass later became the Almond Brothers Band.
Hourglass Band. It was a group formed by Dwayne and Greg Allman. The other members of that band, Johnny Salmon and Paul Hornsby, all both became big-time record producers not long after that, uh, all in that southern rock scene. Anyway, that's how Ed and I originally got together, and we started, uh, at one point, the band that we were at, that we were together with broke up, and it was just he and I left. And I was living in a little apartment, and I had a grand, baby grand piano in the living in the living room and a bed, and that was about it. Right? <laughs> what else did and you need? Ed would come over every day, and we would write songs. And about after about six months of writing songs together, we decided to take it to the streets and see, play a few little clubs, little folk clubs, and eventually someone heard us and signed us to a publishing deal, and that was the beginning of our record career. started getting around town to all the record companies and before long there were two unknown songwriters with uh, a bidding war going on between major record labels two un- you know but it's like the music business has always been like that it's always been like there's a kid over in the corner playing with a toy that no one else has picked up all day and i mean as soon as he picks it up everybody wants it that's and that's that's the way the music business yeah. operated for so many years but you didn't start off as Sanford Townsend Band, did you? You started off as a band called Heart, no relation right. to the to the one that we all know called Heart, the girl right. band. And Ed was the keyboardist in that band. And right. when you when you found a little bit of success at that time, you played a whole bunch of concerts and opened for Jimi Hendrix. Is that right? Did uh, that was an interesting thing. Uh, I think our managers we, we were both on the same label, Reprise Records, which had originally been Frank Sinatra's label but it was absorbed into Warner Brothers. And our managers ran into each other one uh, one day over at, uh, over at Warner Brothers, and they found out that Jimmy was here on the West Coast, and he's been sitting around for a couple of months. He just finished a North American tour. And uh, so, I mean, but such a nice guy. Hey, Joe. Where you going with that gun of yours? North American tour, and he wanted to do. He wanted to play. As all great musicians, I want to play. And instead of sitting around for two months, they booked him about six or eight. I forget exactly how many gigs we did with him, but it's all on the West Coast. It was like secondary markets, like Bakersfield, San Diego, Fresno, right. places like that, and 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 their municipal auditoriums. And we got to know Jimmy at that time, and it was. I mean. Such a super nice guy. I've never met anyone in my life that was such a natural. The day that uh, we were taken up to his house, he was you know, uh, sitting around in his peasant pants and with no shirt on, playing guitars. He had like 50 of them laying around and the truck from Fender, from Fender Guitars had just left. I mean, he had guitars like most people have, ashtrays and nice, you know, laying around. <laughs> 
but he stopped whatever he was doing and was very cordial because and and stuff and said well great you know can't wait to you know get this to do this and we were just aghast we you know we're here i am open wide open mouth with the the number one touring act in the world at that time and just being, which I found of all really great artists, that they're super nice people, you know, they really and, are. And but, sounds like quite down to earth too. Oh yes, very much so. I, well, I had related to him back in my, in a previous band that I was in down south, we played a little show in, a, in, in St. Louis. It was a little club called Mississippi Nights. And we had a night off and it was Monday night and we said, oh, Wilson Pickett is playing at the Municipal Auditorium. So the band went, or most of the band, I think there's about four of us. And we went, we were the only white guys in the audience because it was Wilson Pickett's audience. And we were just amazed. We were sitting there like about 20 rows back and, and nobody noticed us because the music, it was all about the music. And it was, there was no difference because we were all fans of what was going on on stage. Yeah. And then it was a time of some, some pretty interesting racial tensions in our area of the country. But... I told Jimmy that when I met him again, I said, listen, you know, uh, did I see you with Wilson Pickett playing guitar? You know, he says, because we were my, my guitar player and I were sitting there all night going, who is this blankety blank guitar player? He's playing left handed and upside down. And then Jimmy says, yeah, that was me. Uh, he said, that was the first gig I had uh, right out of the army with, with, was with Wilson Pickett. Wow. He said, Wilson hired me because on a recommendation of a friend. Can you remember a, a song that they played together at the time? Oh, yeah. Every song that Wilson Pickett had a hit with. Six, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine. Uh, Mustang Sally. Uh, all of his big hits. Mustang Sally. After Heart, you became Sanford Townsend Band with Ed. Uh, how come he got top billing? Because um, I'm such a nice guy. I thought you I, might say that. <laughs> I deferred. He was older. Than, you know. <laughs> right. And you went back to your home state and did some work with Jerry Wexler at the Muscle Shoals Studios. Is that right? We did. Uh, well, we actually met with Jerry out here. He had. Uh, he had, It was in LA to uh, to do something else. I forget exactly what, but. He had learned that we were from Alabama and that we had originally done our what original recordings we had done in Muscle Shoals. And so uh, we had lunch with him one day with our manager. And um, he said that he's he said, I love the music. I, I, I would like to record you. And we were the first band that he had ever recorded. He'd already he'd always worked with solo artists like Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles. He discovered Ray Charles. Hit the road, Jack. Don't you come back. I think after that, it opened him up. He did Dire Straits after us. Oh. He produced them with their first big hits and stuff. So, wow. uh, 
Well, he, yeah, he was the stuff. He's such an interesting man. I mean, the guy is was is so iconic in the business. I, I worship the guy. Yeah, yeah. Really he was the real deal, wasn't he? Absolutely. And, but and, you know, the funny thing that I've, I I found out about him is that he couldn't read a note of music. He played, didn't ever played an instrument or anything, but he had these ears. He had these ears that he could hear things that he says that's good and it will be successful. You know, I can make that successful. Of course, he was right with you because he produced that that classic hit that you guys had with uh, Smoke from a Distant Fire, didn't he? Yes, he did. And I was very flattered because not long before Jerry passed away, he, he put out a list of his all-time top 20 favorite songs that he'd ever worked with. And I think we're, we were listed right, right around 14, number nice. 14 still. And Jerry Wexler's top 20, and, you know, I, 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 can, I can handle that. You left me here on your way to paradise. And you pulled the rug right out from under my life. I know where you go to, I knew when you came home last night. Cause your eyes had a mist from the smoke of a way to number nine on the Billboard Hot 100, and the Sanford Townsend group spent the next few years touring the world alongside acts like Fleetwood Mac, the Marshall Tucker Band, Charlie Daniels and many more. Hang in there to hear what comes next. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Thanks for being here. I hope you're enjoying the show. As we've heard, Alabama-born Johnny Townsend had been greatly influenced by classic soul and R&B artists like Otis Redding, Ray Charles and Wilson Pickett. But wait a minute, we haven't really discovered where it all started for him. Uh, you know, the early days, my old friend Eddie Hinton, who was in Muscle Shows, I grew, I grew up with. Eddie was uh, one of the first people that inspired me. Eddie wrote a bunch of hits like Cover Me for uh, Percy Sledge, and he wrote some stuff like for Dusty Springfield that was a big hit. And he's one of the guys that inspired me to doing what I was doing in high school. And how I got started in singing, I was a senior in high school in, in, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And Tuscaloosa is about 60 miles from the Mississippi state line. We used to travel over to Columbus, Mississippi, which was just on the other side of the state line, because if you were old enough to reach over the counter, they'd sell you beer when you were 17, 18. And we used to go over there, and, uh, and on the way back home one night, my friend Jimmy had He'd been taking some guitar lessons, and I started singing to the radio on the way back. And he said, wow, you got a pretty good voice. Come over to my house one afternoon, and we did. And we worked up several Jimmy Reed songs, and then, and it was I loved it so much that uh, it was game over. I said, yeah, this is something I want to do because this is fun. Yeah, I really wanted to write songs, and because uh, I thought I had a knack for it, you know, making up stuff. I my first songs that I were that I started writing were actually making up dirty words to songs that were already actually existing. When I was playing with this band, uh, my band in college called was the Rubber Band, and we had a little hit called "Let Love Come Between Us." Baby, I've got a way to stop all this fussing. Yeah. 
regional hit, and it was later recorded by James and Bobby Purify. Mavis Staples recorded the song. Pointer Sisters recorded the same that that song, and that got us started. We went, wow, you know, you can actually make money doing this. And money Johnny Townsend started to make, especially after he and partner Ed Sanford wrote the song "Smoke from a Distant Fire." They unexpectedly found themselves with a huge hit on their hands. Tell me a little bit about Smoke from a Distant Fire. Who wrote it? What was it about? Give me some of the backstory. Well, it's an interesting way that it started. It was right at a time where when Ed and I had written all these songs and we, were, we had appointments. We were setting up appointments with publishers around town. I went to Ed. Ed was living in an apartment down in the Fairfax area. And I, I, I always dropped by because he didn't have a car at the time. So I dropped by and I'd pick him up and we'd go you know, my little Volkswagen around town, around Hollywood to all these appointments. And I got there early one day and Ed had been, uh, had trouble sleeping the night before because his roommate, Stephen, who was the co-writer on Smoke from a Distant Fire, had been up playing classical guitar all night. He And Stephen was one of these guys that if I can't be Bach, life isn't worth living. And he was obsessive about playing. He would sit with a music stand, all with a cup of coffee, uh, and uh, and and play all night, and Ed was just like he he, he comes in and he's just scattered. He's really he's, and he goes he says Stephen he says when are, he says when are you going to stop playing that crap and write something that's going to make you some money? And so Stephen said turned around and he was making himself some more coffee at the time. He turned around, picked up his guitar, and he says anybody can write that stuff. And he starts playing this riff, and I went. Well, that's kind of nice. Uh, why don't you, uh, I said, uh, come in the living room where the piano was. I said, play that one more time. Okay, this is A, okay, and B minor. That's very nice. We really like that riff. And so right there and then over coffee, before it was even awake, uh, I started playing the song, uh, playing the song that Stephen was playing, and he and, and he continued, and then I came up with a with an, a, an alt, a B, B section to the song, and then we all started throwing lyrics at it, and it, it's something that I actually almost started out as a joke, basically, or, or anybody can write that stuff. Well, not everybody can write that stuff, and it just it was one of those moments where everyone got focused real quick because it was something really good on the tape. And, and we all knew it at the, at the time. And so we finished it and didn't think anything out of it, that it was any more special than any of our other songs, but it was Jerry Wexler that, that took that song and, and made it special. came I had just read a couple of days before Ed had written this poem about this girl that he just broke up with and, and Kyle and it was like a really heart-rending letter and he had the phrase in there like uh, smoke from a distant fire I knew something was going on like that I could see the smoke from a distant fire and it was just a line it was a line out of his poem I took that line and I put it as the punchline for this song and like in no time at all like in a matter of an hour to we had the song bust out and we were all really pleased with ourselves at the time yeah I never knew that it was going to be uh, as big a, a, and as successful as it was but you never do it's, it's all a very good and an interesting ride for many years now and I one of the, the the creative part in the song has always been one of my favorite parts because that's the part that I really get off on I, I love jumping in I've always loved puzzles and anagrams and things like that and putting together a song is very similar to that. We usually got a lot of unknowns and a few clues, and you just take some things and piece them together. Hopefully, if your craftsmanship is worthy, then you'll come up with something good. It was uh, top 10 material, and everyone was singing it. Certainly was, for, especially for us, you know. I bet. There are a lot of people that tell me that when you have a hit like that, 
it gets really difficult afterwards because you want to try and come up with something just as good that's going to reach the top of the charts. Did you have that problem? Well, yeah, it, it's, 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 it's an obvious problem. And we, would, we didn't want to go, everyone said you should write something similar. And I went, no, I don't think so. We wrote that. That one's been written. You know, let's, let's do another one. So we wrote a lot of other songs, but it, it was just interesting how it all fell together and then kind of fell apart after a while because Ed and I were on the cusp of, of, a, of a musical, of a genre change within the industry. We were right on the heels of a lot of really good stuff that we related to and identified with. And I think not long after Smoke from a Distant Fire was a hit, uh, the new wave and the punk generation of music started, came about. Warner Brothers actually opened up a separate wing of, of, of the record company to accommodate that. They signed the Sex Pistols, the B-52s, uh, about four, four or five other groups at the time. And it was like, okay. And then, then the same month that our next record was came out, it was the Fleetwood Mac, the big Fleetwood Mac album. I think it was the follow-up to The Rumors album came out and we had been on the road with Fleetwood Mac for a year and a half we were over there opening act for a long time Brothers was out shoveling Fleetwood Mac records onto the truck. Uh, a lot of them take them off to the record stores, and we were kind of we, we were kind of yet came yesterday's news. And Warner Brothers stuck with us, stuck with us for a while. They 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 we did we finished the second album, released that, and and, and did a third album. But it was the time our time had passed. It, it was just that quick. How did that feel for you, Johnny Townsend? You must have felt like, oh, it's it's over. The time has passed, as you just said. H how do you handle that? Well, you have to just realize that that's true of everything. Everything is fleeting in this life, you know? I mean, you know, relationships. How long do relationships last? How long do marriages last? How long, does, how long do people's span of attention last over? Uh, I mean, even the greatest artists... Uh, I mean, who's who's huge? I don't even know who's huge right now because there's guys out there like Warren G that are selling millions of records, but he's one of the few rap guys that I know or hip hop well, artists. It's interesting. I've had the conversation with others to say, you know, who do you think that uh, radio station DJs are going to be calling up and talking about in fifty years' time of the of the current artists? And we can't really think of many. Maybe Taylor Swift. The music is very different today than what it was then, and I think that everything old has become new again anyway. Right. Well, you know, country music is really no longer country music anymore. There's no longer George Jones and the, the great American troubadours like Chris Christopherson. Busted flat in Baton Rouge and heading for the trains Feeling nearly faded as my jeans Bobby thumbed a diesel down just before it rained. Took us all away to New Orleans. I took my harpoon out of my dirty red bandana and was blowing sad while Bobby sang the blues. With them windshield wipers slapping time and 
Bobby clapping hands, we finally sang a failed song that driver knew. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Nothing ain't worth nothing, but it's free. Feeling good was easy, Lord, when Bobby sang the blues. Feeling good was good enough for me. Good enough for me and Bobby McGee. Hank Williams, Merle Haggard, uh, just people that their songs came right out of them. Yeah, you know, yeah. nowadays in, in places like Nashville, and they sit around like a bunch of lawyers and accountants sit around a big table deciding what songs the artists are going to record. There are very few artists in the business anymore, and in and in, in the rap and the hip hop uh, genre, there's you see like anywhere from eight six to eight writers on each song. There's one person writes the groove, one person writes the beat, one person writes the verse, another guy writes the hook. And it's it's taken the art out of it. It's all pretty almost like paint by numbers kind of a thing. You know, it's like we've got a picture of what a hit record should look like and let's let's fill in these colors because these yeah. colors weren't before. I like a lot of it, but uh, the stuff that I tend to like seems to come out of one person. The stuff that are really well, the songs that, because it tells me something about that person who's the artist. It, you know, a lot of the stuff doesn't tell me anything about who's delivering this message. Who do you like today best? Ooh, oh. Put you on the spot there? Uh-huh, you put me on the spot. Uh, I listen to the Doobie Brothers, I listen to Eagles, I listen to mm. stuff I was listening to 40 years ago, which I know is, I'm in denial. music these days. I don't hear the tension between melodies and, and the chord structure underneath and the lyrics that are being delivered. That's where the good stuff is. That's where, where all those those three things, when they start, when they cross paths, they strike you and you go, wow, that's great. So what's one of your favorite songs? Oriental Gate that was on our first album that was that we co-wrote with Kenny Loggett. That's a favorite of mine. In fact, that was really one of our first introductions to notoriety is because that song, the very first American Song Festival, that song won us a, a huge award wow. uh, called Oriental Gate. You know, all these songs, every one I, time I hear, I, I, they bring back memories, and that one brings back some special memories for me. Outside your Oriental Gate Wondering if it's too late To wait for you Come walking up your drive August night blowing breezy cool I feel like a damn fool Cause I got a good woman Crying at home in bed But there's a fire burning in my soul You are water clear and cold Baby, I'm thirsty You're not a water gonna put out the fire, baby 
great together, don't they? The Sanford Townsend Band. Don't go anywhere. There's much more to come from Johnny Townsend. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Welcome back. Johnny Townsend's been chatting about how music has changed over the years. I don't want to interrupt him. Just last night, I was walking my dog and listening to the Doobie Brothers song, taking it to the street. I was dancing down the sidewalk because it's such an exciting record and it has such a great message, too. You know, you don't know me, but I'm your brother. I was raised here in this living hell. You know, it's, it's great lyrics. It's great music. And Michael just sings his butt off. I don't really get off with people shaking their finger in my face. Back to you again, Johnny Townsend, because you said you were writing a lot for the likes of Kenny Loggins and Greg Allman, Larry Carlton and and a whole bunch of others. Then you fell out with Ed, didn't you? Was that as a result of the change of genre and the record companies kind of making you feel that you were yesterday's news? It it was to some degree. I mean, Ed, Ed and I are still very good friends. We have been all these years. And it just got to the point where it wasn't profitable for us. So after almost eight years on the road, we were still not making any money. We were still opening acts. We would do some gigs like with uh, Ambrosia or uh, Pablo Cruz, but it, it got to the point of where we just weren't getting enough shows to make it worthwhile, and we had to go try something else. We've had other successes, not to say, well, I mean, we've written songs for other people. I was writing songs for Kenny Loggins, for Larry Carlton, and a lot of that. It, it, my, Sanford wrote a huge hit for Michael with Michael McDonald called I Keep Forgetting. It was a big hit for him. I didn't know and he wrote so, that. Yeah. I keep forgetting when I had to support our families and we just had to make a move so i went to ed's house one day and i just said listen i said we, we had written just written a bunch of, of, of new songs but we didn't we no longer had the, the recording contract with warner brothers you continued writing during that time which one would you say was your favorite the of people that i co-wrote with i really enjoyed writing with larry carlton because he's such a fabulous musician he's played on most of my favorite records played uh, some, a lot of the Steely Dan things. That, and, but I enjoyed one called The uh, Magician's uh, Lightning Strikes Twice album.
you started doing some solo work, didn't you? I did, and a, a lot of commercials too. A lot of commercials. Uh, I sang a lot of commercials and, and wrote a few. Those were very lucrative at the time, so I was able to maintain a presence in the music industry by not actually being in the music industry. And Does that continue to this day? Uh, well, that that's something else that changed with the advent of, of Pro Tools. When Pro Tools came along, I mean, the producers that I used to work with for in the, in the film and TV and the commercial industry, they would get these huge budgets from these ad agencies that would say, okay, here's $40,000, make me a Taco Bell commercial. Actually, uh, it was some of the ones I did, Buick and Levi's. I did a couple of Levi's ads. And they were fun, but, you know, it's, it's, it's not really art. It's another thing where something was just like, you know, you fit something and paint it by numbers. I enjoyed working with the people, but with the advent of Pro Tools, every kid on the block now has Pro Tools. And so instead of the big budgets, they can give some kid $1,000 and say, for the, and get the same kind of product, achieve the same end for a lot less money. And bam, overnight, that changed too. Seen a lot of changes, haven't you? Yeah, well, you know, I still get royalties. Those are very nice. <laughs> You've got to be grateful for that. In, in the early 90s, you joined Greg Allman and his band for a bit. You toured with them for several years. And then you started the Toller Townsend Band with the Allman Brothers guitarist Dan Toller and his brother David Toller. What was that like? Oh, it was fun. It was really fun. Uh, I'd known Greg and Dwayne Allman since uh, our days. Remember I told you the story about playing with Wilson Pickett? Well, that same band... When we were playing, like, in Florida, we met Greg and Dwayne were playing in, uh, in a little club. They were, like, 15 and 16 years old playing uh, in, uh, on fake IDs in, in bars. <laughs> and we walked in one night and went, again, who is this guitar player, you know? And the singer was just wonderful, you know, Greg. them and because they lived in the south and they were always touring and driving through uh my my hometown was a university town which was always a lot of parties a lot of this and that which our lower level bands would play fraternity parties and all manner of gigs are centered around the university basically and the activities so they would come through, and, and over the years, we, we just became very good friends. And when, when they went to California, within months, they had a record deal, recording deal with Liberty Records. The name of the band was The Hourglass, but they were being produced. They weren't writing, they weren't doing what they want, really wanted to do. They were doing Carol King songs yeah. that the producer would bring them to record. And they recorded them beautifully, and Greg sang the heck out. There's a song called No Easy Way Down, which is a Carol King song with the hourglass doing it. And you go, wow, this is great. But it wasn't what they wanted to do. It wasn't the blues. Your toy balloon has sailed in the sky, love. But now. You know 
Dwayne had become obsessed with playing slide guitar. So they had to go through a growth spurt with that while they were like, okay, Dwayne, have you got that yet? You know, <laughs> sounded pretty so, bad at first. Right. So what you're telling but, me is by the time you got on the road with them in the, through the 90s and 2000s, they had the opportunity to do exactly what they wanted to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because Dwayne went back and he slept in his car for several days outside Muscle Shoals, or Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, trying to get a gig, trying to hoping somebody would, would hire him. And as soon as somebody found out who he was and how, how well he could play, they were bringing him in the studio on Wilson Pickett's, he paid on Wilson Pickett's Hey Jude. He played on uh, some Aretha Franklin stuff and started to get a name for him. And everybody said, wow, this guy's really, you know, through the roof. Let's put some people behind him. So they put a band together behind Dwayne and they uh, called up Phil Walden in, in Macon, Georgia, and said, would you manage this guy and this band and help him put the, finish putting this band together? And so by the time they started playing, Dwayne found uh, Butch Trucks and, and Barry Oakley to, to fill out the thing. Uh, we were living here in Studio City in California for a while, and Greg was sleeping on our couch because he was doing nothing at the time either. So it gets to a point where Dwayne says, there's only one singer for this band, and that's my brother. So we helped Greg pack, put him on the road, took him to the airport to, to go back to Macon, and the rest of that is history. Oh, wow. During that whole little era, there was like about a six or eight month era where he was six weeks. We, we had a little rehearsal room that was a converted garage with egg cartons pasted to the walls. And Greg and I would sit out there at night and, and, and write songs. I learned how to write songs from Greg Allman, and I and I went, wow, you know. And during that period, he wrote several of the songs that were on the first couple of uh, Allman Brothers records. So I was really fortunate to be hanging around him at that time because he, I, I really learned a lot. Mm-hmm. He's a very Greg was a very bright guy. And what about Dan Toller? How was it working with him? Oh, Danny, I miss that guy so much. Danny was out working on our second album when he came down with ALS, and it was just such a heartbreaking scene, but he's probably the most musical person I've ever worked with. I've been playing since he's like eight years old, and his dad used to bring him home Johnny Smith records and all these great jazz artists. he just give him give him anything, and he didn't even have to, you didn't have to tell him what the chords were. I would sit, uh, when we played with Dan, uh, we had this band called the Renegades, with uh, George McCorkle from the Marshall Tucker Band and Jack Hall from Wet Willie and a few other of our friends from Southern Rocker. Danny played with the Almond Brothers and Dickie Betts and all these people. When Danny was soloing and I was singing, I'd step back off the stage out of the lights while Danny would be on the front of the stage, and I'd just get goosebumps. Because that guy was so good, and he just had uh, a way about him. He was uh, such a sensational guy. Take one step back You'll see it's not all white or black So before you react You ought to think it over Townsend, what a treat talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Lovely, Sandy. Thank you. That was founder and lead singer of the Sanford Townsend band, Johnny Townsend, who really redefined Southern rock in the 70s. 
As a footnote, Johnny and Ed are about to become the latest inductees into the California Music Hall of Fame, joining artists like Billy Payne from Little Feet, Buffalo Springfield's Richie Fure and Three Dog Nights' Chuck Negron. Thanks so much for your time today. It's been really great having you with me. Don't forget if you'd like to request a guest, just jump onto my website at breathoffreshair.com.au and let me know who you'd like to hear from. I'll be looking forward to being back in your company again same time next week. Bye now. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. Beautiful day. You're gone away It's a beautiful day